Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Zodiac starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., and Anthony Edwards. Based on Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked by Robert Graysmith, screenplay by James Vanderbilt, and directed by David Fincher. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to cap off this film review cast, kind of centered and inspired by Paul Dano's take on the Riddler in uh, The Batman, which was already like a month ago already. But uh, this kind of serial killers on the big screen. And this one's going to be an interesting one to talk about. Uh, the last two have been kind of inspired by different killers and maybe written in speculation. But this is one that's based on fact, based on something that really happened. So mm-hmm. I tried to think back, you know, this is episode, I think, 161 or 162 in like Rye episode proper. I don't know if we've ever done a like a nonfiction based on a true story film before. You know, we, we've mostly done just all fiction. So I, I couldn't really think back on that. Yeah, I think you're right. We certainly have never done documentaries. So. Mm-hmm. You're probably right. Yeah, based on a true story type of scenario. So, do you say 162? 162, yeah. Wow. That's a lot, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. You remember Serenity? Uh, never forget it. <laughs> remember Aquaman? I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, here's to 162. Yeah, here's here's to that. So, cheers. We're, we're going to open up some more of the Thomas S. Moore. We started this with with, with the Batman. We're going to try and finish this, this up here today. And then just get right into it. I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about. It's gonna be fun to talk about Fincher again. And this may this podcast might be a little bit true crimey today and talking about some of the actual kind of events and then how they're depicted in the film. So you ready to get started? Let's rock and roll. Let's dive right into our flight question. Alrighty, so here's the flight for for you this week. So Zodiac, made in 2007 by David Fincher, has this cast, a great cast of actors in it. But let's just kind of play uh, devil's advocate here, and let's pretend that this film was made in mid to late 70s. Uh, Who are you casting in the three main roles if this film was made in that decade? So let's start with uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. This is Robert Graysmith, cartoonist, pseudo-investigator. Let me go first. Yeah, you go. Robert Redford. Ooh, good choice. It's hard not to kind of lean towards the all the president's men feel with this, so I tried not to do that too much. But uh, I think that era of Redford might be a little bit old, a little bit, but uh, certainly still young enough to pull it off. Because, um, you know, if this movie was made like, ni- I think there's a big difference between 1971 and 1979. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's eight years, so of course there's going to be a difference. Yeah, but even in his um, growth mm-hmm. or maturation, I guess you could say. So yeah, I'm going to go with Redford. How about you? Speaking of Robert Redford, you know what I watched last week? That Ordin- was on the boat. No, Order Ordinary People. Oh, how was that? His directorial debut. Oh, it's a depressing as hell movie, but uh, just kind of interesting. You know, they don't domesticated just drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, everyone's really great. Judd Hirsch, uh, Timothy Hutton, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Donald Sutherland. But that was his directorial debut. One best picture and best director. I was like, didn't Hutton win? He for- won. He won too. Yeah. 
And Mar- Marilee Tyler Moore was nominated as well. You know, um, it's been a long time since yeah. I've seen that film. Sure. Probably not going to. Like, I'll do a Kramer versus Kramer and Ordinary People some night when <laughs> I want to set myself on fire. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but Timothy Hutton, I think, was stated for stardom. Sure. Yeah. It never really quite got there, did Mm-mm. it? Yeah. A, kind of a bit thing here and there. The dark half. It's really good and beautiful girls. Mm-hmm. You ever oh. seen that? Yeah. And what was the show he was in? A sci-fi show? Thirty three hundred. He was in one of those like sci-fi USA shows. It was like a science fiction show, and he was like the lead in it. Yeah, uh, good choice. I'm gonna take your all the presidents men. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> uh, side partner, and I'm going with uh, Dustin Hoffman. So, uh, yeah, and for I just sure. I just kind of think about how Gyllenhaal is in this is kind of like naive, but then when he gets in deep, it like really starts to like cave in on his personal life. And I kind of thought a lot about Benjamin Braddock and just kind of how wired Hoffman is at the end of that movie. And I could see him doing that as he gets in deep in the Zodiac investigation, running from location to location. So excellent. Let's go to Detective David Toski. This is played by Mark Ruffalo. 1970s detective. Who are you casting in that role? Richard Dreyfuss. Ooh, that's a good choice. I don't think uh, that's the common police detective look, but I think that's why it works. And I want to see him... Mark Ruffalo's character arc is a bit of a self-grandizing in this, mm-hmm. I think, sort of self-promotional. Yeah, I'd like to see Dreyfus go the hard drinking route. I know that's more of the Downey Jr. role, mm-hmm. but um, and there's ways they could play it out. But I still think, you know, Dreyfus and, and Ruffalo to a certain degree don't have the the body type to be the rough and tumble guy. They tend to be, I think more on the cerebral side, Mm -hmm. which just makes Ruffalo a strange choice for Hulk, I guess. Um, Regardless though, it's all CGI. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think Dreyfus at that time was doing pretty good. And Mm -hmm. I think he had his craft down pretty well. And I could certainly see him pulling that off. That's a, I'd never even thought of that. That that would be great. Yeah. They're all going to (laughs) die. Uh, good choice. I, I am going to go with, it could be kind of interesting to see how this guy's career would have panned out with a few more just kind of more high profile roles. I'm going to go with uh, Jason Miller, uh, Father Karras from The Exorcist. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, he just kind of has that looks s- like him. square jaw. Mm, like dark hair, features. Detective face, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of weathered look like he's been doing this a little bit too long. Uh I could see them in uh, making a Dirty Harry uh, based on his portrayal of a detective, right? Mm-hmm. So other than Exorcist and Exorcist 3, I've never seen him in any other film. So smack dab in the middle of the 70s. I don't know, maybe William Friedkin's directing this version of Zodiac, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, why not? Uh, yeah, I'll go with Jason Miller as Detective Toski. Boy, that's a good one. Um, you know, I guess I didn't realize that that guy hadn't made any more appearances in films save those two films. Did you look it up? Is no, it a- no, those are the only things I've seen him in. I'm, I think he has a pretty okay filmography. It's just nothing I've ever If ever you and seen. I can't recall, yeah. are you sure it's an okay filmography? When I say, not to sound pretentious, but that's no, a lot of film viewing in this room right now. When I say okay, he was in things. All right. We just never saw them. All right. Uh I think his son probably had a more prosperous career than he did, Jason Patrick. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, role number three. This is going to be a uh, reporter, Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr. in this film. Hard drinking, cantankerous, uh, wild card, uh, investigative journalist. Who are you casting in 1970s Zodiac? I bet we have the same one. Okay. It's Gene Hackman. Oh, no. I don't. No, that's a good choice. And he can just be Pop Boy Doyle. Okay. 
not that character, obviously, but that edgy, hard-boiled, not friendly guy. Um, yeah, Gene Hackman. That's, that's a good, I want. That's a good choice. It sounded like three, two separate films that both sound really watchable, right? No, yeah, I love these. What do you got? Al Pacino seems like the obvious choice here, right? Yeah. Especially after Dog Day Afternoon sure. and just seeing him kind of go wild and crazy. I'm going to go with Dennis Hopper, though. Oh, that's terrific. Maybe even a little bit more on Unhinged, but I, once the hard drink, there's that scene, I can't wait to talk about it, when Downey Jr.'s at his seaside shanty. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he looks a mess. Yeah. Uh, I could see Hopper like getting there, right? You know, probably was there. It probably was time. there at that time, exactly. Full method. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, Good that's choices. Yeah. So we have uh, Gene Hackman, um, Richard Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Redford, and I have Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Jason Miller and Dennis Hopper. Sounds good. Dread, both directed by David Fincher. <laughs> or 1970. Fr- no, Friedkin. I mean Friedkin. Yeah, William Friedkin. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, let's I go like ahead. that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. I like doing the fan cast. You know what I mean? Like if just films were made of a different era, like you know, even like Seven. Like if Seven was made in the seventies, like who's playing those roles? You know what I mean? Mm. That'd be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Henry Fonda, maybe someone like haggard older detective or something. I Richard Roundtree. Yeah, pretty exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, so let's dive right into our review breakdown of Zodiac. Good. I want to report a double murder. You go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, the public park. Go find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a nine millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Pretty ominous, right? Yeah. Let's start at the beginning here in the film, and then we're gonna backtrack slightly into something that's not portrayed in the film so we start here july 4th 1969 4th of july uh we we pick up with darlene farron who picks up her date picks up her date right matt <laughs> mike majo uh as they appear to be having i don't know that's it, it's almost kind of like an affair of sorts yeah. uh but they kind of you know settle off into this like lover's lane like little quarry here as you know a bunch of views come and you know you know try and prank them with some fireworks and then it all gets a little bit more serious once this mysterious car shows up and they think it's a, a either the cops or b someone that's gonna gonna be robbing us here what do you think it is about this particular setting uh because this is very urban legend like right you know the the the, the rusty hook on on the door handle what, what is it about the lover's lane setting that just looking on the screen, you know, it's it makes for a good scene in like a horror suspense genre. Sneaky. Mm-hmm. They're sneaking, the two of them, in this lover's lane in this car that she picks up. And there's also, in a strange way, uh, a kind of a role reversal. Usually it would be the guy picking the girl up. Yep. And usually the guy, I would say, this might be wrong per the data, but it seems like the guy's usually the one that's stepping out on his, his uh, female companion. Um, what throws the thing even into a weirder realm is that she has braces. Mm-hmm. So she's not that old, at least not portrayed that old, but they're sneaking. And that creates 
a nervousness in especially Mike Majot's character. <coughs> Thank you. That is noticeable, and um, I just sort of sets you it sets you on edge. He's he's on edge from the minute she picks him up. Yeah, like he doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to be there. So you're already on edge. You're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, and then Zodiac strolls in here. You know, okay, get your wallet. Gets we're gonna just give him our stuff and and this and that, and it's quite different, right? It's just a bunch of gunshots and. It's set to the, the hurdy gurdy man by by Donovan. It's just that makes it even more ominous, right? Mm-hmm. That's like that's. I always thought that song was a little weird, yeah, and uh, fairy tale esque, and just something just kind of off about it. Uh, this kind of dreamlike quality about that song, as that's playing over them, kind of getting shot behind this car, and then he leaves, and then comes back to kind of make sure that they're that they're dead. It's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the way they shoot it. Uh, I want to talk about each one of the Zodiac uh, scenes in the film because I think they're done four different ways, which makes one beg the question, is this four separate crimes? Right. So I'll get your theories later as we kind of lay out the evidence on the table, but this is an effective way to start the film here. Circa 1969, it's a period piece. I think Venture's nailing the tone. I think Mm -hmm. he's nailing the vibe. And then when we end with that phone call of the guy calling in, I killed two kids and I killed the other two last summer. And then he just goes, goodbye. Something doesn't feel right about that. Something otherworldly, uh, a, a real life boogeyman of, mm-hmm. of sorts. But let's kind of just kind of jump back real quick. So this is actually the second murder that was attributed to Zodiac. The The first one was the Lake Herman Road murders. And this was Betty Lou Jensen and David Arthur Faraday. This is December 20th, 1968. In a similar kind of lovers lane execution, they kind of they were going they were on their first date. Mm. Uh, it's almost Christmas, and they kind of pulled out the side of the road here and and were killed uh, by another armed assailant here. So the fact that this guy knows that detail, and then when he writes into the the, the chronicle here in the next scene, we uh, he shares some details that only he would know and the police would know to further corroborate his involvement with that. But the film doesn't decide to show that. It decides to show this one first and then kind of get in late with it, and then we catch up later. I think that's pretty smart, too. Yeah. Because a film that's going to have a lot of information thrown at you and we're going a few different directions with different characters, um, the way they kind of piecemeal it together, I think, is another kind of part of the film's success. What do you think now when we, when we transition to the, I think it's the next week, we introduced to our, our kind of main players here. We have Jake Gyllenhaal playing Robert Graysmith. He's a single single father, looks like. Uh, and then he work, he's a cartoonist with the San Francisco, a political cartoonist. And then Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery. And we're getting to Downey Jr. who's, this is like right before Iron Man and Tropic Thunder. He had just done Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the beginning of his like. Reestablishing a career. Reestablishing tour here got getting sober getting clean what do you think of these two castings and the characters themselves why don't you kind of go with the castings first i love it downey in that role of paul avery is great Mm -hmm. it's almost a shame that he's the first one that kind of leaves the case sure um i don't think the film suffers because he's not in it but i do find him among a cast of i think entirely capable actors Mm -hmm. 
to be, and maybe it's just the the Robert Downey Jr. gravity that he just has. It's just that that His energy, that magic that mm-hmm. he has on screen. Um, the way they dress him, uh, what is it? Is it? It's like a gold vest with the green, yeah. like. Uh, button down under that that's not, pretty and an ascot if i'm not mistaken it's kind of sharp <laughs> it kind of is in a 70s green way right i, I like that i know yeah. yeah brown corduroy pants would be nice with that green mm-hmm. shirt um yeah he's terrific jake gyllenhaal is the ingenue cartoonist i think is also great mm-hmm. um mark ruffalo well, let's get to him a little bit later okay. uh once he kind of is introduced but those two i think play really well off each other as an unlikely duo because they have mostly nothing in common even the investigation, even the the way they write, mm-hmm. we're talking hard investigative reporter versus cartoonist. That's yep. an unlikely pair mm-hmm. from A to Z, not only professionally, but socially, mentally, physically, uh, substance abusively. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Downey's great. And he seems to be able, as Paul Avery, to take the slings and barbs and arrows that have probably come with that profession for a number of years and sift through them in pretty efficient fashion as what you would need to do in order to turn out piece after piece, day after day after day. You have to be fast in that line. With a bit of humor or I don't want to say lightheartedness, sarcasm that I think is more self-defense than dismissive. Sure. He's great in this film. I think so. This is a role perfectly suited for him. And, you know, don't you kind of wish he would do more films like this now that he's kind of done with Stark? Hopefully, you know, they they don't find a way to just undo his death. But these type of like cerebral, kind of like procedural investigation dramas or just it kind of lets him spread his acting chops a little bit. You know, the last serious thing I think he did was that one with... um, the courtroom drama thing with oh, his the dad judge with what? Yeah. Yeah. With Duval. Did you see it? Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Wasn't yeah. It? I didn't like it. That's what everybody had said. I kind of thought about it. And then he also did that one with, um, Zach Galifianakis. No. Oh yeah. D- due date. Due date. Mm-hmm. The comedy kind of a doc, like a black comedy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that was okay. He's, he picks weird roles from birth to chaplain to well, he's you, got you, a lot of weird stuff. You in take, or not birth. I mean, fur, fur. You take these three years, you take 2007 Zodiac, and then you got Iron Man the next year, and then Tropic Thunder. I mean, those are three, like, really different projects, right? Uh, and it's three different kind of Downey Juniors we we really get to dive into. So it's good. I, I, love, I love seeing him in this. I like that this is kind of the beginning of his resurgence tour. And what do you like him best in? So you just did drama you did sci-fi and you did comedy so of those three drama like not, less than zero uh chaplain yeah. this yeah i think he's really good i mean like and then when he fully goes for it and like really gives it to someone i got a really good clip here a little bit later yeah the guy's the guy's got talent i mm-hmm. mean it's not just he has such a natural charisma and people say he's just playing himself well yeah it's because like that's like very you know people like that people like that energy that he brings to the especially the stark role I think I prefer drama. It feels like time for him to go into that path that a lot of actors, I think, do, which is searching for the Oscar-winning role. Sure. It feels like it. And he's deserved of it. It's a very mm-hmm. talented performer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think now that the Stark thing's done, the Marvel thing is done, and that frees up a lot of his schedule, because he was busy for a decade, yeah. obviously, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh 
it feels like it's time for him to start. And sometimes that can be a mistake. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that leads you with such strange roles that you sort of ostracize yourself from the society and you pick a couple really stinkers that you think are cerebral or edgy or might have that. Yeah, and it's bait. <laughs> and it's bait. Oscar bait. And you end up getting eaten as the bait instead sure. of baiting the trap to catch the Oscar in the yeah. jaws of, you know, performance life. That's well said. The other thing I really like him in too is uh, Natural Born Killers, playing a uh, kind of like a Geraldo. He's there. really good in Fur. Did you ever see Fur? Yeah, yeah. He's good in, that's a weird movie, but mm -hmm. he's good in that. Yeah. Yeah, like, I just love, anytime he shows up, I don't complain, you know what I mean? Yeah. The movie could be trash, and it's like, he's still probably pretty good in it. He's even really funny in his little cameo with Favreau and Chef. Mm-hmm. That's an underrated movie, right? Wickedly underrated yeah, no movie. No one saw that. That's one we should cover mm -hmm. someday. Food truck, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. And then Gyllenhaal, too, I mean... Here's another guy, I mean, with whether he's starting out with like something like Donnie Darko and uh, October Sky. Boy and in the then, Bubble. <laughs> bubble Boy. <laughs> Whatever it was. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Uh, and then into stuff like this, and then you kind of see him progress with things like... Um, Brokeback. Brokeback. Nighthunter. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. <laughs> Nighthunter is another good title for that. Southpaw. Uh, that was terrific. Yeah, I mean, I think he's got some range too. Uh, and what was the Prisoners? Heard of that? An Enemy, other uh, uh, mm -hmm. Denis Villeneuve uh, film. So the guy's got a uh, interesting range as well too. And I like that he's kind of playing like almost like sycophant. Like he's kind of sticking his nose where he shouldn't be. Like who needs the political cartoonist in on the month on the 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 daily uh, meetings at the Chronicle, right? You know, I I, I thought about that. Yeah. Um, and my, my initial reaction was the same as yours. Like you wouldn't be in on that unless mm -hmm. there is a contemporary element to political cartoons. Okay. So maybe having them in on the meeting so that they can sit and be privy to what the paper oh, is running. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Cause mm -hmm. I thought the same thing too. Like there's no way he'd be in that meeting. The cartoonist, like go do something funny about like taxes or whatever. So like kind of keeping up to date with current events. Then. Maybe. Okay. I, I wouldn't know. I've never worked in a newspaper, but. It's not a terrible idea to have that person in there, I right? I guess I could see that. That way he's privy and up-to-date on things. I mean, if you're going to be satirical, you certainly need to be informed to get there. Sure. I don't know. I just kind of want But it's, it is weird. That is weird. I just want your take on this, uh, too. Downey Jr.'s job in particular, and not to say that there aren't investigative journalists today. I mean, it's a different world today, but can you— doesn't this sound kind of like a cool job in the 70s? Like, you would actually have to call and cold call places to get tips that take you to this place. There's no internet to help you out. Right. And everyone's smoking, and they're just, like, taking drinks probably from their desks. It just seems like a high-energy job that has, like, a lot of avenues hustle. it could go to. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And you talk at Woodward and Bernstein and, and that, like, that type of, like, investigative journalism seems interesting to me. I'm with you. Uh, just It just seems like a lot of fun work. Maybe it takes you down to a dark place as it does in this film with these people. But that energy, I was getting a vibe off of it last night. Lots of meetings in the shadows in the bar, and that plays really well for screen. That's yeah. great on cinema, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if I we can say that it's really mm -hmm. fun. Like, I've always told you, yeah, one of the families that I'd love to be involved in would be a mafioso family. Yeah. Because they're all so close. Yeah. But th when you really get the hell I do. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's a scary job, too. <laughs> Same thing here, right? Exactly. Oh, I want to be an investigative journalist. I want to get in the underbelly of society and, you know, shoot smack with the losers because that gets me in and this. No, you don't. Well, you I, do, but you don't. And then it, maybe it's the way the film portrayed it, too, because I even thought Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards' job seemed pretty interesting to me, too. Uh, just kind of getting in deep with the clues and then trying. As for, Their job's frustrating, though, because it goes essentially nowhere in many different directions. 
But getting to that crime scene with the cabbie and them just kind of like playing out the scene, I was like, that sounds kind of like a fun job. You know what I mean? A nightmare job uh, for sure. But there's something about the way the 70s portrays that. And maybe I think it's the lack of technology. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Good take. We get our first letter here. Mm -hmm. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Sometimes gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with the girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I'll be reborn in paradise, and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. A manifesto, right? This is got a plan. He's got a plan. Uh, and do you think it kind of fits a little bit with the the opening crimes here at the beginning? Oh boy, that's a good question. No, I don't. But I don't know if it matters. Yeah. Um, I don't think. No, I don't think it matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't. Who would you want as slaves? I guess that's that's the question. And who would you want? Yeah. Would you want, you know, two lovers and some clandestine meeting on Lovers Lane? I I don't know. No. It what doesn't. we're gonna find out is that that opening scene kill was kind of a crime of passion. Mm-hmm. He knew Darlene. Faraday or Farron and lived. We find out at the end that they lived really close to where she worked. It was kind of salt, pepper and salt and pepper shaker away from each other. Exactly. So crime of passion doesn't necessarily lead me to believe manifesto psychopath, right? No. But I think that's the appeal of what Zodiac brought to the table was that he was very vocal and out there and writing to the paper and the fact that they played into it. And so then you get into the morality of the newspaper of do we run this story and give him a pulpit to preach to or do we kind of put it away? But then he keeps killing and then maybe the responsibility is on us because we didn't play his game. I thought those scenes were pretty interesting too, like – do we run it? We'll run it, but we're going to put it in the back. We're going to hide it in the back. That way we're not putting it on the front page. The fact that he was out there and people are reading newspapers and watching TV, that this was a killer that was very much speaking to the people. And it was the reign of terror that he had. He doesn't kill a lot of people, but the fear that people had to have had in San Francisco, 6970 had to have been like, this is kind of creepy, right? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine just turning on the news. And as a kid, can you imagine like 10 year old, you, and there's a guy saying he's going to shoot the kid he's coming out of the school bus. So that's kind of scary for a kid. Heck yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Makes me think about the letters <clears throat> and the cipher element in this film. So when I was first just dating my wife, mm-hmm. this is a long time ago. Okay. We had taken a trip to Arizona. Okay. And we went to some strip mall and, you know, Scottsdale Glenwood kind of a thingy and, off the not too beaten path was a fortune teller. Mm. And so I said, what do you think? It'd be fun. She's like, yeah, let's try it. So we walked in hand in hand and I sat down to get my fortune told first. So you don't do it with your partner because that's not the way it works. And that brings yeah. other energy in the room. So do it separate. I had yeah. to wait in this waiting room or whatever. Okay. And I had to laugh because I realized when we walked in holding hand in hand, looking back at it now, we gave the fortune teller so much information that she could use to foretell what was going to Mm -hmm. uh, unfold in my life. Yeah. And I distinctly remember and laughing about it when she said was, 
you might be with, you know, looking at my palm, Mm -hmm. you might be with the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with now. They may already be in your life, but they may not be. Now, if that doesn't cover all of the bases that are entirely possible, Mm -hmm. I don't know what else. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) The chick that I walk in with, I'm holding her hand. So we're obviously a couple. Yeah. And secondarily, it might work out and it might not. (laughs) So do you think your bases are covered? Sure. Yeah. So the point I'm making in that is the ciphers that the Zodiac writes, if in fact they're all written by the same guy, Mm -hmm. if in fact, with the exception of the first two, because that the, the one letter that recounts the body position of the first two seems to be pretty consistent with information, someone privy to being in the action Mm -hmm. after that, if you run a cipher in the newspaper or some decoded letter, you are opening up a whole can of crazy Mm -hmm. for everybody who's got a pen and a paper and plenty of time to drop a bunch of little numeric Rumian symbols or whatever the hell it is. And that's certainly part of the film, Yeah, but that's a long response to your um, reading of that letter. Mm -hmm. I don't know in this and even in, and I've never read the book and you know way more about true crime than me. So Mm -hmm. I don't profess to be super knowledgeable in this. Mm -hmm. What you can take from this as factual or fanboy and that's not only frustrating in the viewing and intended to do so. I don't, sure. It's not a knock on the film. Yeah. But it's also frustrating for those that are investigating because in a city of San Francisco in 1970s, you have millions. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird city anyway, Jesse. Yeah. I mean, you got Pop Lebo. Mm-hmm. Just kidding, right? It's even designed weirdly, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hate Ashbury is legendary for the weird shit that goes on there. Yeah. So you're right out of you know, hippie era, there's plenty of psychedelics that are still floating around. Mm -hmm. Paul Avery's looks like a Coke addict at this point, still Mm -hmm. in the movie. And you keep getting these symbol laden manifestos that don't really say anything. And like, go, can you read what you, can you read that one? Like, let's, let's break this down for a minute. Read what you just read again. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Sometimes giving me gives me the thrill, thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with the girl. It is the best part of that that when I die, I'll be reborn in paradise. And they have it. They have all the misspellings too. So there's such a generic... It's like from if you bought a book that said, here's a bunch of weird stuff mm-hmm. and everybody owned it, mm-hmm. then there's a generic element to it. Yep. In paradise, yeah, man is the most dangerous animal, rocks off with a girl. Mm-hmm. All of that is so nonspecific and kind of uncerebral. Mm-hmm. Like compare this to John Doe. Yeah. It's so it's so simple mm-hmm. and poser weird. Yeah. That it just comes across as sort of generic. Anyone could have written that. That's the point yeah, I'm sure. making. No, I, I, could have been a fortune teller that knew I might have been with my wife or not. I really started to think this last night. So after the, this Chronicles first letter and all of that, we cut to Lake Berryessa in Napa Valley. And we get the... I want to make sure I get this right here. Just bear with me a second. We get the murder of Darlene... Oh no, of uh, Cecilia Ann Shepard and the attack of Brian... Heart now. They're just having a picnic there at the edge of the park. And this crime seemed different than the one in the first one. This guy went in with a gun. He was very efficient. And now here we have this guy who's going to use a knife 
to finish to finish off his victims and tie them up in kind of a weird, torturous way. That seems different. Mo, I'm playing cop now. Uh, that seems different than the first crime. So, so I think the costume's different too. Exactly. Yeah, it's a hood. Now he's a hooded figure figurine. Uh, and what he's telling them, he's like, "I just broke out of prison. I need you. I need your car. I'm going to head off to Mexico." I mean, that sounds a little bit different than crime of passion. If he is indeed telling the truth. Now, the thing that messes this all up is that on the car door uh, of their car, he etches in Vallejo 68, 69, and then he writes this one on there, too, to kind of tie it all together. Either he's using that as an escape plan because he truly intends to go to Mexico and wants no one looking after him. Yeah. But it just feels different, right? Yeah. And the next one, too. <sighs> you know, you brought up Downey and Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. And I think that movie plays a lot with the real elements of what happened in this. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who is crazy and you want to get away with it Mm -hmm. or criminal and you want to get away with it. And by criminal, I mean going to the level that most of us would never do because that filter that we have is there and crazy would be the breaking of that filter per my definition in this film of crazy, Mm -hmm. thus Zodiac or serial. Mm -hmm. It's perfect cover, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just going to say I'm this guy. They never found this guy. They're going to think I'm this guy. I'm going to put the dates on the car door, which is easy enough to do. You just have to remember the day that they were murdered on. And there's plenty of libraries that have the newspapers. It's a good out, right? And it's a perfect out. Mm-hmm. So, And then you're you're covered in a costume. I only wonder that because he never wore it again and he didn't wear it before that. You know what I mean? Well, so this is the question that uh, maybe we shouldn't do this now, but maybe we should do this now. You know much more about this than the average bear. You are a true crime Mm -hmm. aficionado. As we sit here in 2022, what is the state of the Zodiac killer per actual investigative discovery? So what we're probably dead, I know now because it's sixty years ago. That that has to be true. Uh, But uh, kind of what the film's going to lead us to believe that you know Arthur Lee Allen was indeed one of the probably the best suspect that they ever had. uh, The the way things kind of lined up, and there's been kind of some interesting developments here and there. Um, But the most interesting one, this actually happened in October of 2021. Um, there's this group called Case Breakers, and it's a bunch of uh, 40 uh, cold case investigators of past law enforcement inf- officials, military intelligence, uh, some journalists, and uh, they claim to have identified the Zodiac as being Gary Francis Post, who died in 2018, um, that they uncovered forensic evidence that was able to tie him to that. But um, CIA and FBI said that it was, you know, kind of inconclusive and that the case is still remaining open. So, they thought that they kind of got cleared. And, I, you know, you kind of think now with something like the Golden State Killer and the, the ability to tie the DNA back with, like, these, like, 23andMe things. As that's kind of how they caught that guy, uh, the the hereditary genealogy pools. That maybe something might come up on being able to identify Zodiac, but it's all just so ambiguous still. Even one, even Arthur Lee Allen, I mean, the way this film ends uh, with picking him out of the lineup, they go to investigate him and then he died. I mean, so they, they couldn't even question him properly or kind of get anything out of him. So that's probably the most frustrating thing about this. And I think an interesting subject for a film, how do you make a film that has an inconclusive ending? Yeah. That's the trick. Sure. And I think that's Fincher's greatest hurdle to overcome. 
Uh, I did some deep diving into just Fincher uh, prior to him getting involved in this project. You're going to love this bit of nugget information. Mm -hmm. So the screenwriter, James Vanderbilt, uh, had approached Gray Smith about reading the the books. Uh, He was kind of obsessed with the case for years. That's some ties to Spider-Man, too, later on, Vanderbilt does. Mm -hmm. Or maybe prior to this. I guess it'd be before this. Yeah. Early Spider-Man. Yeah. And... uh, he got the option from the studio to do a spec on the great Smith's books to kind of combine it, but to be as truthful as possible to, to the case and that the studio really wanted Fincher to do this, but Fincher was tied up in a production, but it was going nowhere. Um, but then he, and he decided to bail and he did this film. Do you want to know what that was? Sure. It was, it was black. It was black Dahlia. Oh, wow. Yeah. And his plan was to do a five hour, limited series television event, maybe on HBO or like AMC or something should have been done that way. And it didn't go anywhere. So he left the project and then De Palma came in and we know how that, and the movie still didn't go anywhere. <laughs> we know how that went, right? Wow. Really? I thought that was interesting. I never heard that before him with that idea. If he ever, if he ever wanted to do it again, I think it's still there for him. Right. Yeah. Mini five episode mini limited series. That seems about right. And he likes the space, obviously. Yeah, he I mean, does. From seven to this, and then Mind, Mind Hunter. Hunter. Mm-hmm. He obviously likes the space. He's, he's got a knack for it. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, Fincher did. Mm. So he was probably, I think, in just five or six when this was really going out. But throughout the seventies, he called uh, Zodiac the ultimate boogeyman because it was like a real thing. And yeah. watching the news and that, and he's very much the Jake Gyllenhaal's son in the thing, where. He's going to turn the TV off so he doesn't hear like the really juicy nuggets. Uh, there's something to be said about that, you know. I remember watching Robert Stack's Unsolved Mysteries, and it's just terrified, got, and it just got too real. You know what I mean? Yes. Especially when they're like, and they never caught the guy who did it. If you know who did it, call in to Unsolved Mysteries, and then you go update, and that music scared the shit out of me. Like so did his voice, and oh, he, so effective, right? Yeah. What a great program, just in in general, but. Well, you have never been able to get away from horror your whole life, have you? No, yeah. You are such a, you. it owns you. But th- th- that type of horror. I, I th- love it. And I think to, we, to you <laughs> in horror, my friend, that's gorgeous. And I think we discussed this on our History of Horror episode we did way back when. It was probably episode 30-something, right? The real-life tears versus what's Michael Myers and Freddy and Jason. Like, there's the, the separation of that is really hard for me the true life stuff really gets under my skin and cause you know, these are real people, real psychos, right? Yeah. Doing these horrible things. And so when you find out, Oh, they're still out there and they never caught the guy that did it. Bury a seventies as a kid. That, that's got to just freak you out. Mm-hmm. You know, people are locking their doors a lot that summer, right? Oh yeah. Those summers. So we get to the next murder and this is where our investigative duo is going to get involved. This is, uh, uh, the murder of, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Stein. He's a cab driver. But again, this feels different than the last two things. This is one gunshot to the neck. He goes in and then kind of rummages through his taxi cab. It almost just looks like a robbery and then right. and scampers off into the night. Mm-hmm. Completely different from the other two. Um, but this is where we meet uh, Mark Ruffalo and uh, Anthony Edwards. I think is pretty good in this film. Uh, Last time we talked about him, it was a goose, but they're uh, Detective Inspector Dave Toski and uh, Bill Armstrong, who this is their beat, right? They're just tasked with the the cabbie shooting, and then it becomes rolled into the Zodiac stuff, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think of these two and they're just kind of their role in the film? Because 
I think we get three separate movies in this thing, right? Yeah. We get the Gyllenhaal movie, the Downey movie, and then their movie, right? Oh, well said. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think they're they're good. Um, Anthony Edwards is probably a little in a little deep water, mm-hmm. um, but he does seem capable of being the all too friendly and worthwhile sidekick. Mm-hmm. If you want to go goose to Maverick, sure. Um, it's funny, you brought, you know, I didn't even think about it. T just said this now. It does feel when they're introduced like there's going to be a bit of labor involved for you to get rest to the rest of the film, mm-hmm. time wise. Because you are now, that's got to be like 45 minutes in when they're introduced. Um, and we still have, you know, a good two hours left in the film. Sure. So there's almost, it's almost, that's almost this like opening of Act Two, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Yep. So, yeah, that's a late get in, and that that can be done well, no doubt. Mm-hmm. They're good together. It's just when they get in as late as they are, and the other team, if you will, has progressed as far as they have. You know, at least I did. I felt like okay, we're going to have to get these two parties together, and we're going to have the reluctance because the cops don't want to work with the journalists, and it's none of your business. But we have information, and there's going to be that bridge of trust that they have to build before we can unite and then ally to bring the Zodiac killer to justice. That's mm-hmm. a long answer. And I don't even know if I was to your question. <laughs> They're good together. Yeah. Um, what I really like what Fincher, I, yeah. I, what do you think? What I, what I like what Fincher does with these characters in this part of the film is the chaos of trying to investigate something that's really developing uh, a following the fact that yeah. Zodiac's writing to the press and he's on the news and people know what he is and what it is and isn't. And they're smack dab in the middle of that makes it really hard to get your job done. And the way Fincher shoots and edits these scenes between uh, San Francisco, uh, Napa Valley, which is, uh, uh, I think that's Daniel Lug. And then, uh, Denal Law, Daniel Law, yeah. Denal Law. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, Vallejo, which is Elias Cotes, mm-hmm. the big la- cast, huh? the lack of yeah, I think they're good together mm-hmm. too. Uh, th- the way they jump back and forth in these phone calls, they're not sharing information. They have this piece, but they're not going to give it to them unless they give them this. How do you get your job done? How do you make any headway in trying to find a suspect when the investigative parties and I can totally see the jurisdiction of counties not wanting to cooperate with each other because. They want to solve the case, sure, right? Sure, yeah, credit, right. That's how you become police chief. You, It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the, the 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 chaos of it all. Anthony, There's a scene in the film where Anthony Edwards is on the phone with both of them. They're like, I'll send it to you. I was like, I'll fax it over. We don't have telefax yet. We'll put it in the mail. Well, there's another five days until it gets to us, right? Yep. The time being wasted, the circles you're running around, and it's your own... Uh, essentially co-workers that are you're, no one's communicating with each other lack thereof communication maybe that's a theme in this film uh along with obsession how For sure it is even if you want to include the ciphers in there and the inability to communicate that way sure mm-hmm. certainly yeah it, it's all just it that's the part of the job that would be just infuriating to me it would just be like well i can't do anything with that because this guy just won't give me this piece of the clue that i need and then when they're talking about yeah, the, the groundskeeper at the Lake Berryessa just swept everything up in the picnic blanket and just threw it in the trash. Like, come on. <laughs> well, think, yeah, exactly. Think about all of the untimely 
passings. And while we're doing it to Taylor Hawkins mm. and the Foo Fighters. Yes. Rest your soul, my mm-hmm. friend. Mm. And what that's done just in life from Natalie Wood to James Dean mm. to Elvis to Kurt Cobain. Jim Morrison. You know, the, the weirdos that create their own altar or pay homage in whatever strange fashion for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Now take that same idea, blow it up with 1970s poorly informed yellow journalism, if you will, mm-hmm. the readers, and then because they didn't communicate, the breadcrumb trail of clues that never connect to the other ones, but somehow have at least a reference point that in San Francisco and Vallejo, they might kind of be related. And you create, literally, that's how you build a cult, Jesse. Yeah. And so in real life, through the 70s into the early 80s, trying to find the Zodiac Killer who might have done the first two, mm-hmm. and maybe, actually, I'm sure he didn't do the taxi driver. Yeah. I will bet my right foot on that. I think I would too. There's no, that's just some nut job that murdered a taxi driver and robbed him. Just wanted some cash, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And questionable about the two at the lake. Mm -hmm. Very, very different. Who knows, I might have been scorned boyfriend, or who knows, from the girl. Mm -hmm. You create this copycat phenomenon. Yeah. And in serial killer land, am I not mistaken that that is very, very common and a a huge issue? Isn't that the plot of the Scream franchise? (laughs) Yeah, right. And, well, they made a movie also, Copycat. It's not good. Oh, yeah. Jr. and Sigourney Weaver, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You do. Yeah, you're almost enemies to your own devices. I mean, you mentioned the Black Dahlia. Have you seen some of the weird shit that's around the Black Dahlia and the people that follow that death and, like, the conspiracy theories and celebratory actions that they do on that? Yeah, people get obsessed. And I think that's why this case... Ritualizing weirdness. This case has a longing-lasting impact is the the obsession over it, the details, how things don't line up, but then they sometimes do, and then the circumstantial evidence, and that doesn't make sense, but this does, and... If you open the door to odd, sometimes your house guest is fucking crazy. Yeah. But I think Fincher's really good at putting all of that in this film, too. Sure, for and sure. What we're doing, we're going to do with the characters. I just, this part, and Dermot Mulroney as their police chief, he even answers the phone like Arlie Ermey. This ain't even my desk. He does. You're right. Uh, it just sounds frustrating. Uh, it's probably a little bit easier now, but probably different parts of frustrating. But back then when... We don't know what DNA is. We sweep away clues in the trash. We can't communicate because we don't have a fax machine. (laughs) We have different set of issues. And I just thought that was fascinating and chaotic in its its own regard. But this is an interesting part in the film as well. I wouldn't think they would ask for capital punishment. We should ask the district attorney. Do you want me to do that, Sam? Do you want me to talk to the district attorney? (laughs) Creeps me out. What was that, Sam? Uh. I did not say anything. We heard a scream. That was my headache. You sound like you're in a great deal of pain. My head aches. I'm so sick. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them. Fantastic. Can you imagine sitting there in 69 and listen to that on... Melvin Belli's program. No. Oh, goodness. Uh, that scream, that just, yeah, you're right. That's a very effective moment there. 
But what we find out is this is just some guy in a loony bin, right? Yep. They're caught up in the frenzy, the frenzy of trying to be this and that and give them a spotlight, right? Talk on the on the television show. You get your 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 five minutes of fame, so to speak. It's an effective moment uh, mm-hmm. too. I mean, it, it goes. It's another clue that essentially goes nowhere. The stuff with Brian Cox and he well, that guy's always good in everything, right? Yes. Uh, this just it's just another kind of just another frustration. But it, it, Fincher finds horror in all these moments that kind of go nowhere. Mm-hmm. The best ones at the towards the end of the film. I we'll, we'll talk about that. But that that is a, it's a road. It's a brick wall. But it's maybe the most effective moment of suspense in the entire film. Well, you brought it up earlier, and mm-hmm. I think it's worth noting now. How do you tell a movie when you don't really know what the end is? And you make the characters that are involved in it the drivers of plot. Sure. So I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Whose movie is this? Ooh, good question. I have my choice, but I want to hear yours first. It's not by a lot, though. I kind of think this is Ruffalo's film, mm-hmm. but Hall's a close second. The fact that it starts with him and his kid and we see this avenue into him as this cartoonist and then he's the last one left standing yeah. that's willing to do the work. But we spend a good chunk of time with Ruffalo in the middle of this film you too. Do. So, I don't know, kind of both. What, who are you going to go with, Joan Hall? Gray Smith, yeah. yeah. Uh, as the chief protagonist, but it's my second choice would be Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. And it's it's really close. Isn't Gray Smith kind of an interesting character? I mean, he's just a, this cartoonist who's really into puzzles. And he's already into kind of figuring stuff out with his son. And they kind of look, I love that kind of like family, like he has them looking for dates later in the film. Oh yeah, put that down. That's good. Write that down. And Chloe 70 comes in like, what are you doing with the kids or something? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I, he, he makes an interesting care. And the, the journey he's going to take by the end, just to prove, he's like, I'm so in the deep in this thing. I just need to look the guy in the eye and I just need to know. We don't need to arrest him. I just, I need to have a feeling on a yes or a no. Mm-hmm. And until I do that, this is going to be chaotic. So are you staying or are you not? I think that's what the movie ends up being, Mm -hmm. is the collateral damage of everyone involved in the Zodiac Killer, Mm -hmm. including the community of San Francisco as a support character just in mass. But Mm -hmm. the other four to five players and how this turned their lives upside down. And I think that makes this movie all the more remarkable that it gets made. I I don't know what the pitch was like. Mm -hmm. And obviously they had an adaptation of, I would imagine, a pretty well-sold book. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was bestseller or not, but it probably to be mm-hmm. optioned and all that. Yes, probably. How do you pitch that? Well, I want to tell, tell a movie about the Zodiac killer. Okay. That's a decent pitch. Cause okay. It's a murderer, serial killer. You know, give me the three beats. Well, I have these, blah, 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 blah. how does the end go? I don't know. Cause they never caught him. Wait, what? So yeah, I'm actually not going to tell it about the Zodiac killer. He'll be in there a little bit kind of, but instead it's a character piece about those that were involved in the investigation at three different levels, family, professionally, and mentally mm-hmm. pass. I know, right? You're done. It's a hard sell, especially with an inconclusive ending. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, Fincher's willingness to take this on and I think he just pieces it all together so well. I mean, the editing of all these sequences and we jump from, crime to and they're not reenactments as part of the film but crime uh investigating domesticated life and we get a good snapshot into like what these people look like right uh and i think that's i mean they they make dirty harry came out in 71 
and he's fighting the Scorpio killer who's writing ciphers to San Francisco. I mean, they they took the Zodiac and did it in the first Dirty Harry film. Mm-hmm. So inspired by Toski to, to some extent. So mm-hmm. it's right all there in the zeitgeist of San Francisco around this time. And I, I think that's the other thing too. I mean, we've been hard on CGI in the past, but I think Fincher uses it really well in this film to recreate a bygone 70s look that is impossible to recreate today. Mm-hmm. That's when I like seeing CGI, trying to replicate and show something that is impossible to show today. Mm-hmm. That opening bit to Carlos Santana's Soul Sacrifice and the opening credits as he's showing the Port of San Francisco, that's a that's cool. I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every all the roads lead start to lead to this one suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, and it's all through just kind of uh, testimonial from family members that kind of get him on his trail. He talked weird. You know, he came over to these parties. He was a weird guy. And he mentioned this to me about killing and all this and that. And you might want to talk to him because he, he might be, he kind of fits your, your thing. So then they, they do go talk to him. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous. No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is... That's a horrible thing to say. So, you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? But doesn't everything kind of, it, everything looks really good with this guy, right? The boots, it's the same size tens that were found at the lake. Um, where he was on, on these nights, the things he says, the, 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 the watch, the watch, it just looks right, right? And is that accurate? The watch? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. This, okay, this poses a huge question then. Okay. The boots fit. Mm-hmm. Checkbox, 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 right? And the watch says Zodiac on there. Yeah. We've brought it up, I think, for a couple weeks in a row from Batman till now. Okay. If the watch says Zodiac, mm-hmm. are these terrible investigators? I don't know if they're terrible, if they're just, there's a lot of red tape they have to get through. Because in the following scene after this, I don't think it's, if you rented it, I, I watched the director's cut and I found, this is my favorite part in the movie, and I found out it's not in the theatrical release, oh. so... There's a scene where Dermot Mulroney, Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo are all seated around a speakerphone. And they're, I think they're talking to the DA about getting a search warrant. And they're just laying out all the evidence against him. And I think it's about two and a half minutes. It's a spectacular scene of saying, and they're just breaking down what kind of what we're wearing, the, the boots. Uh, he mentioned this, he mentioned that, the watch, this, and the DA, who sounds like George Clooney, by the way, <laughs> uh, goes... That sounds pretty good. Let's get a search warrant. Let's do it. Because then I, it becomes, we need evidence. We need to put the that with this, right? This all sounds good circumstantially, but we still need to put him there. And that's where it falls apart, right? They go to the his disgusting uh, <laughs> it's a trailer, right? Yeah. Squirrel City. And they got nothing, right? And it's another brick wall, a dead end. And I kind of feel Ruffalo's pain in that sequence where he goes, 
I don't know if I'm upset that it is or I wanted it to be him so bad so this would just all end. Mm -hmm. The frustration of when everything looks so good that it just, in the eyes of the lie, you can't do anything about it. And what does Anthony Edwards do? He's like, I got I to gotta bail. I'm out. You almost would have to, right? I mean, I think personally myself, I don't know if you got that close and then denied. I don't know if I could stick around with it. I think I would just be so burnt out because you're living Zodiac 24-7, right? Right. Seven days a week, 365 yep. a year. I mean, you got to move on. And I like how he says, I'm not leaving you high and dry. Or he says something like, I'm not leaving you in a bad spot, am I? And he's like, no, you're not. You got you to do your thing. And then, you know, then we follow Downey Jr. And his kind of, he leaves the the Chronicle because, you know, he's been targeted by Zodiac. And that's the other thing with the the shirt, right? Yep. It's all this evidence that it adds up, but it doesn't add up. Uh, but years later, Gray Smith goes to, visit, uh, goes to visit him. And this is why Downey's so good. Do you know that more people die in the East Bay commute every three months than that idiot ever killed? He offed a few citizens, he wrote a few letters, and he faded into footnote. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It's four years ago, let fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk, you stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You went to the library. I'm sorry I bothered you. He comes to him saying, you should write a book about drum up some interest in it and maybe we can get closer to catching him. And he's just like, look how, look at me. You think I'm writing anything? I'm taking a, a bourbon chaser with a, uh, with a bottle of vodka. Yeah. Uh, and he looks rough, haggard. Mm-hmm. He's playing Pong. This <laughs> place looks like shit. And he's saying, I love that line he says, more people get killed in the East Bay every three months than that guy ever killed. The frenzy of it all, right? People want to know who that guy is, who did it, and how far are you willing to go to get there? And Downey's like, I'm done. Do you want to do it? Be my guest. You essentially hovered over me and stole stuff from me for years. He's, he's really good in that scene. And then when we see him one more time later with at the bar with like his little oxygen, oxygen. tank on the bar, this guy's in a rough spot, right? Yeah. Lived a hard life. And never got to see the, this sought through to the end. None, none of these guys will or did. Nope. So then we it, go, it becomes Gyllenhaal's story. Is Gray Smith dead now? Uh, I think he's still alive. Is he? I think he's still alive. And was a consultant on this film, and two of the vic- uh, the, the 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 guys at the beginning that survived, uh, Hartnell and um, I'll look up the other name. They were consultants too, so I feel like there was some willingness to tell as truthful, authentic of a story uh, as possible, which I think that's rare in nonfiction cinema, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when you see a nonfiction film, it's like, oh, this is far from Bohemian Rhapsody, thirty <laughs> percent accurate. Yeah, right. I think they did a. I think that was their goal. I mean, Fincher, Vanderbilt, and one of the producers spent about 18 months doing their own Zodiac investigation before even setting out to shoot one reel of film. Wow. Just to know what it would what it was like and what roads it led them down. So there's an attempt for authenticity with this film, and I think that's another reason why I like it as well, uh, the people involved. But now we're in Graysmith's section of the film here 
What do you think about him? And he's very well domesticated now. I and mean, we, we saw their first his first date with Chloe, mm-hmm. 70, uh, and it, it was the most interesting first date as they're waiting for the phone call from Paul. But they have kids now. They're living this life, and he's just still obsessed, right? He's doing this, his cartoon, his cartooning still, but he can't let it go. What do you think about all that with, with him at, at this point? Because we're like six, seven years later removed from the case. Yeah, it's uh, taking a toll on him. Um, he's doing better than the other players for sure. But he's doing better from the, than the other players because I think he's got an outlet for this maddening case that they've all been given. Mm-hmm. So your choices were Avery, drink it to death, <laughs> leave entirely, or doggedly stay after it and just be resilient enough to go hurdle, 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 hurdle until you finally get to the tape, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I love that we get the beginning of him and Chloe Savigny and then we see them later on. And this is after we get the Mark Ruffalo piece that you spoke about. He's out of the film for uh Grace Smith's out of the film for a good 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we come back and, Oh my gosh, they have kids that are like of walking age and like of homework age yeah. and how much time has gone by. And I know that there's the little numbers at the bottom, but I think when you see, where it was on first date to married with kids and growing kids, Mm -hmm. it really does hit like, wow, this didn't just go away. We've got to be close to the eighties. I think we are. I think what it is, this is 1978. So we're eight years removed from when this whole thing started. Like it's like move on, but he he can't let it go. And he says that thing that I Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, if I just need to look him in the face and I need to know, but if this guy's so good at puzzles and think maybe he can uncover something that was just missed a detail, an anecdote, something that's going to put it all, put it all together. And this is another interesting part of investigative journalism. So the golden state killer, um, Pat Oswalt, you know, Pat Oswalt, mm-hmm. the actor, his wife, Michelle McNamara did this. She wrote a book about that killer and she got to go dig through all the files and the, things and kind of put it all together and it was around that time that all this drummed up interest that they found him a few years after that through the dna Mm. identification so this is another way you can investigate something too this is another type of journalism of just grassroots doing it on your own sure as he's going to elias cotes and begging let me look at that i need a name i just i know where it is i need a name and they won't let him write anything he's got to as soon as he leaves the police department he's got to go write it all down but we get into this thing with the, the handwriting and uh, uh, Philip Baker Hall, right? He's the handwriting analysis and trying to tie up these. But we get into this thing with this guy that um, uh, Rick Marshall, who wrote these movie, uh, drew these movie posters and the handwriting kind of matching up. And it's the closest match we've had. So maybe this is our guy and he has ties to these people. They saw him at the parties. No one ever looked at him. And this road that he goes down, he ends up at, Charles Fleischer's house, mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit, Charles Fleischer, right? Mm-hmm. And he's talking to him. He's like, oh, yeah, most dangerous game. We showed that movie back in 68. I have all the ledgers here. And you want to take a look at the handwriting. It's the closest we ever got to a match. And this, I, I don't know how, I've never read how tr- close to true this moment was. But if it wasn't, Fincher's inclusion in Vanderbilt's screenplay to have a moment like this in the film, that realization moment of, Mr. Graysmith, Marshall didn't draw the posters. I did. I did. And there's like a moment of recollection of, am I in the belly of the beast right now? 
And then he says, I have those ledgers down in the basement. And then that was another clue, too, that this guy might have a basement based on kind of the stuff he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's right down here. Not many people people have basements in California. I do. What an ominous moment. And then he he goes in there, right? He goes in there and, and, then, and then this. You live alone? Uh, most dangerous game ran in May 69. So that would be about nine weeks before the first Zodiac letter, correct? Uh, yeah. Do you think he saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? No. Thank you. Thanks for everything. You're welcome. There's a lot of great stuff in there. The the tea kettle, the footsteps upstairs, the the darkness. I mean, yeah, being the realization of, oh, I might be here with the real guy. And he's we talk about superior and anterior positions. All this cask, right? Mm-hmm. Graysmith has a huge disadvantage here, right? In oh, the yeah. basement, you're in the lair, possibly. Uh, and then it's another road that goes nowhere. But what, a, what, what a, just a great moment of suspense. And if that came from the mind of Fincher and Vanderbilt, to their credit, because that's a spectacular sequence. You just can worry. It's that moment, too. You said it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You really are going to go in the basement. You're just asking for it. Mm-hmm. But you have to for cinematic purposes. And then Graysmith, too, for... But if I go down in the basement, I'll get that nugget of clue I need, right? Yep. How far are you willing to put yourself out there as dangerous as it's going to be? Do it, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's such a that's such a wild moment. So then he goes and interviews Clea Duval, who I always associate with the faculty, mm-hmm. which I just kind of came up. What if we did a cask of um, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Sutherland one, and then the faculty? That'd be pretty interesting, right? Ooh, that would be fun. Three very different, similar films, though. Yeah. And she's in prison, but she she was friends with uh, the the first uh, victim, talking about this guy that always came around and was kind of stalking her. Came to the diner where she worked, uh, and he came to the party and kind of gave her a weird vibe. Uh, and she's like, "Was his name Rick Marshall?" And he's like, "No, it wasn't Rick Marshall." And he's like, really defeated. But then he says, "Yeah, his name was Lee. He went by Lee." So then, Arthur, here he here we go again. It's it's this guy that they looked at. Uh, and so that he's getting phone calls in the middle of the night of heavy breathing. Like, how could that, how that would that not freak you out mm-hmm. before caller ID, right? Yep. And this takes him down a road and he's getting mad and furious. His wife has taken the kids and his house looks like hell, all the clues and everything. And he just wants a way to kind of just prove who it is and, and all the clues. So finally he gets, you know, Ruffalo, who's already had it up to here with Gray Smith. <laughs> And it was like it's Arthur Lee Allen. Uh, what do you, what do you think about this? And the way he breaks it down for him. How can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both northern and southern California, with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. 
Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. So? The prints, the handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop, but I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Easy, dirty, Harry. Finish the book. And I think what that also shows, too, is a mutual respect between the two guys. Like, when he says, finish the book, there's kind of an understanding of, you did good here, but the only thing we can do with it is how it's presented and how you show it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that can drum up some interest for us. But the way uh, Graysmith uh, breaks it down is he does that whole thing about Arthur Lee Allen spending time in, in prison, and there was no correspondence with the Chronicle at that point. And when he gets out, what do we see? Our first Zodiac letter in four years? Like, look at all the, the, the clues and everything. But, you know, that, that scene ends. And then we kind of... So if this is the ending we're going to get, Graysmith goes to the Ace Hardware store where Lee Allen works to have that moment, right? I just need to look him in the eye and I need to know. And as he approaches him and he doesn't say anything, right? He, uh, he just said, Lee Allen's like, can I help you? And they kind of just stare back and forth for 20 seconds. This kind of, the way Fincher shoots it, right, too, is there's an understanding, right, of these two guys know. And it's enough for Graysmith and Lee Allen, too, of like, does this guy know who I am? If he in, is indeed the killer? It's a pretty good moment, too, right? John Carroll oh, Lynch, yeah. yeah. Uh, is that a satisfying, for, an end, for a film that's not going to have a tie a bow around it type of ending, what do you think of that? Yeah, because what's he going to say? I know you did it. Yeah, no. And then it's also, you know, I think all three of these films in this cast have worked around this. You're going to pursue this bad guy, and it may not leave you anything other than tainted yourself. I mean, think about what happens at the end of Seven. Obviously, nobody gets mm -hmm. a good fair shake there. Yeah. Clarice is still in pursuit of Lecter last week. Yep. And now this... You got what you asked for, maybe, and now what are you going to do with it? And there's nothing you can. And that's pretty consistent with the type of killers that I think we've presented for the last few weeks. And oftentimes the killers in these serial killer kind of real-life true crime that get away with it. Mm -hmm. You've maybe found your guy, and what words can you possibly say that will make up for the last 8 to 10 years of your life that you've burned on a maybe. You're speechless. Because it's still, like, according to the DNA from these two people that you were talking about in October of 21. Yeah. It's still a maybe. Right. It's a lot of time and energy spent on a maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the biggest collateral damage in this film. That's not to make light of the people, or in real life, mm -hmm. the people that suffered and died. Obviously, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. But Downey nailed it. Like, we're, we're investigating acorns in a forest of acorn trees yeah. they fall all the time you're gonna do these three on the ground and it, it's because it was so uh sensationalized sensationalized yeah the fact that this guy was writing letters 
He was dressing up. Like, one thing I always was like, how come these serial killers never wear masks like Michael Myers? Yeah. Because it's probably hard as hell to kill people with a mask on. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) this guy did, right? He had a getup. He looked like an executioner from the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, yeah. Uh, Letters, taunting, uh, the knowledge. There was just something so... There was hooks everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. You just got sucked into the stuff with the Brian Cox TV interview. You got pulled into it. Like even myself watching this last night, I like I paused two or three times because I just went on a deep dive into it and just kind of looking at just some of the the details and stuff. We didn't even mention, you know, how Toski gets accused of writing some of the letters, the letters himself to for, promote his own, you know, professional endeavors. Right? I mean, this this thing is 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 wild, it, and it just we it, didn't get into the bit where people are wearing like pins saying I'm not Paul Allen, yeah, or not Paul Allen, um, Avery, Paul Avery, yeah. Paul Allen, yeah. Seahawks guy, yeah. Yeah, because I don't want to get killed. I mean, it, it had such a firestorm, and there's very other than maybe the Manson murders and Son of Sam, mm-hmm. serial killers uh, operate under a va- veil of just like mysterioso. Mm-hmm. This everything's out in the open with with this one. I think that's why it's so fascinating. Yeah, you're right. Avery says it good. He's like, more people have died than that guy ever killed, and we're still talking about it, and we're still trying to find out. And it's the obsession piece. What all three of these guys have gone through is fairly taking a toll on their lives right yeah even graysmith i mean he's got he he made the most headway but like what kind of life did he have like after that yeah after that's all been put to bed but now the the now the guy that took over for elias cotes in vallejo uh has tracked down mike Majot at an airport and just wants to run you know a lineup through him of potential suspects the books come out uh and he looks at the guys and he points out Lee Allen. He was like, I'm about 80% sure. And he goes, last time I saw this guy was July 4th, 1969. And this is the guy that shot me. That's pretty powerful evidence too, right? Yeah. The, one of the victims is able to kind of pick him out. So, uh, yeah, it's frustrating, right? It's frustrating as a viewer, as the people involved and the people that just want to know, I mean, who did it? And, why can't we get closure on this thing? Well, it's almost like you're trying to put the pieces together from two puzzles that got put in the same box and maybe even mm. three puzzles. Mm. That got, so like imagine half of the puzzle from the original puzzle still in the box and then some straggler pieces from two others are thrown in there to get you to the set of maybe 100 or maybe 97 out of 100 pieces. Yeah, 50 of them are the original, 20 from this and another 25 or 27 from the other one. They all kind of have a similar color and they're all puzzles, but you can't put them together because they're not the same. So there is no finality to this. What's frustrating though is about the time you run into a dead end, which should tell you this is going nowhere and it's time to let it go because there's nowhere for it to go. They keep uncovering enough to keep them themselves interested. Yeah. 50 yards door to door. And it just so happens that there's another coincidence. The Zodiac watch is just another coincidence. At some point, it's not coincidence. It's all this divinely or criminally orchestrated plot. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it isn't. And that's the thing, like the or and the maybe, right? That is Mm -hmm. the true curse of the Zodiac in this film. And then for those people that investigate it, but it's what makes it for really good viewing because it's so Mm -hmm. antagonizing. Sure. Ah, anxious and frustrating. Absolutely, yeah. And that's there's not very many films like that. I mean, Seven has a definitive conclusion. I think Silence of the Lambs does. It's kind of open-ended with Lecter's business, but with the real-life thing of, yeah, we don't know who did it, 
how do you tell a compelling story? And I think, you know, through this conversation, hopefully you've kind of made a decision on, on that, but that was the hurdle to really come over uh, with, with, with this particular project for Fincher and, and, and all his crew. But yeah, that's the end of the film. I was trying to see if I had any other little just nuggets here of, of information, but we'll just get right into it. What was your favorite tasting note of Zodiac? I think it's the Ioni sky bit where he picks her up on the side of the road with a blown tire mm. and she hides her baby in the thicket off to the, yeah, we didn't talk about that. Yeah. That part that's harrowing yeah. to watch that. Did you know? So that person, she's, she has this baby and she's also eight months pregnant as well. Mm. And that's kind of hard to tell in the film, but why would you pull over, man? I mean, there's a lot of red flag, stranger danger knowledge you could learn from this film. Like yeah. you just keep going. Like this guy's flagging you down. Just keep going. Yep. Don't get in the car with him also. Yeah. I don't think that guy was Zodiac either. No. It's just so different, right? Yeah. Although he does say, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty harrowing. I got to go with this moment that I don't even think you got to see, which is Anthony Edwards and all these guys breaking down. I was so good. Like, the writing of that is so tight. Damn. It's like you would, we would spend just like weeks just trying to really polish that and make it you know just so good and and vanderbilt like really did that in in that sequence laying out of all the clues i would love to see that in more like of these types of films like mm. really piecing it all together I, I thought anthony edwards was really good in this film watching it this time of uh, him playing phone tag with all the different police stations and the frustration and just trying to make heads or tails of everything there's the other guys there's so many details in this film the guys that stopped him after he killed the cabbie, the two, they get more information from him. They, they do a new composite sketch off of what those guys give them, right? Mm. Yeah. Like, this guy was white, and he was kind of oh, yeah. stocky, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Yeah. I got to go with that moment. What's the... Oh, my God! ...moment of Zodiac? You know, it would be easy to say it's the stabbing at the lake, because that's really hard to watch. But I don't think it is. For me, you know what it was? And I caught myself like, oh, my boy, that is like hitting really close to home. It's Paul Avery drinking the Blue Velvets or Aqua Velvets. Aqua Velvet. Blue Velvets. Yeah. Aqua Velvets and drinking a David Lynch drink. Yeah. Talk about fucking yourself up. Yeah. Uh, Drinking the Blue, uh, sorry, the Aqua Velvets and then doing those lines of Coke off that spoon in that booth. That is Mm. really, really close to home Mm. for him. Yeah. And I just thought, man, if that's accurate and Paul Avery was that hard drinking, hard partying kind of guy, what a crazy role for Downey to cast. Well, he was willing to go there with some of some of the, and I feel like this is not that movie, but Iron Man not willing to dabble into Demon in the Bottle could have been remarkable, right? The biggest sin for number two. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like they were going there and they, they dip a toe in, but then they got kind of got scared, right? Right. And he was willing to do that much closer to his sobriety mm-hmm. with the character that he just absolutely nailed. Um, to his credit, yeah, that 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 is I remember that. That's and then his his Shantate, more of that, right? Yeah, yeah I got to go with the basement bit. That's just that's horror. That's just like a situation you would never want to be in. But to get to the verisimilitude of the truth at the end of the day, I got to go into that basement, right? Yeah. Ah, man, that's brutal. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Zodiac? Oh, 
I'm going to say Vanderbilt, I think, to adapt a story that really wasn't finished um, and then be able to, and he delivers a tome. This is a 195 or 185-minute film. This mm-hmm. is a long, three-hour-long film, mm-hmm. so he had plenty of space to get it done. But for a movie that doesn't have an ending, that could make this even worse. Mm-hmm. But it is a complete story insofar as you get to see what happens to arguable, but the chief protagonist arc is mostly completed by the time it's done. Even go. in the film, even if it's not in real life. Mm-hmm. Great acting, great casting, great screenplay. I got to give it to Fincher. Yeah. I mean, we kind of saw this with Mank, right? This period piece passion project that is just such a lull and doesn't really go anywhere other than Mankiewicz's bed and some studio lots. Mm-hmm. And the price at the end of the day is, isn't what we really wanted. Right. Right. To him to kind of almost do something fairly similar, period piece, passion project, something that kind of doesn't go anywhere to have a definitive conclusion. And I think just, I've never seen him be just so in control of the story as he is with, with this one, with his actors. And this thing goes into 10 different places all at the same time. It feels like, and he's able to go there, wrangle it back in, go there, wrangle it back in. And it's all part of the greater story. And, his perfectionism, I, I think I called him Kubrick in the 7 episode. I mean, he does 70, 100-plus takes on the, this digital film stock. And I think he gets the most out of the performances. I mean, this is the Fincher I love to see. I mean, I, I want more of this. Um, and maybe he just has to just truly invest. And the investment, too, right? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine us doing an 18-month investigation before we even write, in, write fade in? Not spec. I mean, that would, yeah, yeah, right. Not spec. There'd have to be some moolah attached yeah. to that, but there's some commitment there, right? Yeah. This ain't just a gig. This is, we need to get this right. Right. So I got to give him credit for that. I mean, I think he followed this the next year he did Benjamin Button and yeah, I'm pretty lukewarm on that. Mm-hmm. And then the social network after that, I mean, he, he was really, and then before this was panic room. So he's really in like a middle space here of, I had the time to devote to this thing. And, feel bad for him because this movie didn't make a lot of money at the end of the day. It was kind of fairly underwhelming at the box office. But again, it's a hard sell, right? It's a very niche type of crowd that likes this type of film. Yeah, but it's a really masterfully done film, so it's a shame. Uh, But, you know, Seven, critic-wise, isn't really reviewed as highly as you and I did either. I was looking at some of the Rotten Tomato stuff. Yeah. 82, 81. Yeah. 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 Low high 70s, low 80s. Mm-hmm. It's way better than that. So I don't want to say that Fincher is misunderstood and he's made some big mistakes along the way. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, kind of in the line of Robert Downey Jr. seeking out that next role that's going to be the one that gives him the hardware to prove that he was worthwhile, it's close for Fincher to find that next project that is that project. He, he probably thought that was Mink, right? Or it was geared to be oh, something certainly. like that. Yeah. yeah, it was just a mess. But he picked a wrong time and a, and a really pedestrian story to tell it in. You know, that was everything direct to, to screening. And of all those films, just totally off the point, mm-hmm. and then we'll get to the ratings here. Yeah. Of all those films that we saw during that direct-to-video or on-demand, you know, the, the... Oh, yeah. I think, was it Possessor? I think Possessor got a theatrical... Was, was maybe the best one that we... I think that we did. Possessor did get a theatrical release, but we never saw it here because everything was shut down. But I think in Canada, it did come out. Oh, hands down. Possessor ruled, man. Like That might have been the best movie of that year. I think back about Possessor a lot and what we talked about it. And I was like, that movie is actually really good. Really good. Yeah, so you're right. 
Anyways, it, it definitely wasn't me. <laughs> and it wasn't Wonder Woman 84. No. It wasn't Tenant. It wasn't... Godzilla Kong. It wasn't Jungle Cruise. It wasn't uh, Black Widow. Like, nothing in that period. You're right. Yeah, it, it probably was, so... Yeah. To Brandon Cronenberg. <laughs> well, to him. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that's not his film or his podcast. We already did it. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to see about that. But how do you get a rate and grade Zodiac? We have Rock Out Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you going this week? Um, single Barrel. Uh, pretty hard to tell a movie or, or tell a story without a, con- a concrete ending, and he did a masterful job. Um, it's not my favorite Fincher film, but mm-hmm. it's certainly in the top third. Mm-hmm. And probably even higher than that, top three. Mm-hmm. Um, he got great performances. He was able to wrangle a lot of egos and a lot of moving parts on set together at the same time. I mean, think about all of those. Mm-hmm. And then just keeping the movie going in his head with all of the different chapters and the way it's three films, like you stated, yeah, um, handled really, really well. I, I don't know if I'm ready to sit down and burn another three hours and watch it again because mm-hmm. um, it's a bit of an investment. It is entertaining and... Really, really masterfully done about a subject that I think is fairly interesting and a space he's good at. So, yeah, it was a really good film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm going to go top shelf. I think I've set off, off mic to you here. This is my favorite Fincher film. And there's just something, I noticed it last night when I watched it, but every time I watch it, I just pick up on new details. And it's the detail, right? The attention to detail of what people are wearing, the fashion, the music, the look, the vibe. The, the clues, where that's going to lead us, the dialogue. Uh, there's a great sequence. I, th- I think this is also deleted in your version, but there's a two-minute over-black montage of music and news clippings that get you from 72 to 78, I believe. Oh, wow. And it's just like a time capsule. That's cool. So you get like disco in there. You get some, you know, yacht rock. <laughs> you get some just, it gets you to where you need to be. And I think it's a pretty effective moment that like, something PTA would do that Fincher's doing in, in that film. But I get, I, I think this can be said about this cask. And I, I, I guess I never realized that until we finally did it. Seven silence in this one, you know, usually I take notes and I'm trying to pay attention to just things, but like all three weeks I've just been sucked in completely into like the story. Mm. Like I'm like investigating with these people. Wow. And that's a testament to, I think this genre, I think maybe I really like this genre. That's <laughs> Uh, or, or it, it's kind of gone gone the way of uh, uh, other vices, right? You're setting me up so well. Here. I, I think I am, but I noticed that about myself. It was just yeah. like seven, like halfway through seven, I was just like, I was like in it. And then like Clarice, I was like, got sucked in and same thing here. And then I, I got sucked into the real world stuff too with, with this case. So there's a power to this genre. Well, it's stunning that it took us 106, 159 episodes to get here then, isn't it? Well, we talked about it for a while. Crazy, though. We definitely wanted to do it. I knew it would be a good discussion to talk about these particular films uh, and that this particular genre. Well, I guess then to Paul Dano, because he's the one that got us here. (laughs) Thanks, Batman. (laughs) Riddler. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, they just released a couple days ago the deleted scene. There's an extra deleted scene from the Batman of Batman talking with the Joker at Arkham Asylum. And it's a very Silence of the Lambs scene where he's taking like a manila folder of clues to the joker to like help him give him info on who's doing these things and it came out and i saw it and it it is what it is but i was like i'm glad they cut that out because there's like no room in that movie for that scene like it's already over long and you're gonna put in another talk behind the glass scene thank Mm. goodness they cut it out but it's 
definitely setting up more for for a sequel, so yeah. to speak. With the Joker? Exactly. Huh. Never heard of him, right? Weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. I don't know what a hurdy-gurdy man is, but it doesn't sound good, right? Mm, not at all. <laughs> you set it up so well, so a genre that we both really liked that dominated a decade of film. I guess I'm going to ask you what happened, and this is just your theory into what killed the procedural crime thriller. Um, what what did it in? Why did it go from the place that it was in with this? And this is a little bit later, mm-hmm. but the sevens. Basic Instinct is included in that too. Sure. Um, Sliver, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Kiss the Girls, mm-hmm. Copycat. We could just rattle them off. And mm-hmm. not all of those are great films, but they were done Jade. Okay, Jade. Long Came a Spider. Yeah. There's a million of them. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Okay. I, I have some some thoughts. I don't think it's... I think it's still a popular genre. It's just in a different form. I, it dominates podcasts right now. Yeah. You know how many true crime podcasts there are? Like thousands. Yeah. Uh, so I think people get their fix in just different ways. I think, you know, documentaries are really good too. I, Netflix does the true crime documentary really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a Richard Ramirez documentary, I think, last year, last spring. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It was so good. I, like, I watched the whole, th- all four hours in one night. It was, it was just, I got sucked into it. Um, I do think I have a definitive answer for you, though, on, like, what killed it. And I think people got their other fix in just an easier way that wasn't film. And I'm going to go with the whole caveat that is Law & Order. The television show. We have the same thing. Do we? Yes. It has to be, right? Yes. For or CSI too. CSI, NCIS, procedural television yep. got so good in the mid-90s, NYPD Blue, that it kind of became the norm, right? Yep. They did it so well. And I really don't like a lot of those shows because, and it's just me because I like a serialized arc. Mm-hmm. And those are just one-offs, procedural. That's what they call it in the writing terms is it's a procedural drama. One and done, right? Yep. The X-Files did that too, but with an arc right. at times. But Law and Order was like the, the king of that. And then you have SVU, Criminal Intent with D'Onofrio. They even tried to do Trial by Fire with Fred Williamson. And I think uh, there's a new version that came out that brings Christopher Maloney back into it. It's Dick Wolf, man. Dick Wolf killed uh, the procedural film on screen. What, what do you think? Yes. Yeah. It was so popular and easy to monetize because it was such a popular thing. What a great idea. And here's an idea. In television, let's do a cop drama. We've never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Of course they have. There's always cop shows. And there always has been from Hill Street Blues Dragnet. to Starsky and Hutch to Car 54, Where Are You? Like there's millions of different iterations of cop shows on TV. You know mm-hmm. why? It's real simple. It's good guys and it's bad guys. Mm-hmm. And if you can do a flavor of the bad guy each week in an episodic thing, versus 18 months of research to maybe make a movie that costs a fortune and doesn't return it. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to do. Episodic television killed the procedural thriller, as you and I would call it. I think SVU's the the one that's lasted the longest. I think mm-hmm. they're in like season 21 or something of that show. 
Well, isn't there at one time? Wasn't there seven different CSIs? Different Miami, Vegas. There was Miami, New York, Vegas was the original. I think there's a Hawaii one now, and then that's resurgenced into like I don't watch a lot of these shows too, by the way. But like Hawaii Five O came back, yep. and that's procedural in its own right. Yeah, Magnum PI. Yeah, that came back too. Or no, did it? No, I thought it did. I can't keep track of all of them, but I, I've watched some episodes of like SVU and. Knight Rider. I'm just kidding. They it do pull you in. I mean, they there's a formula that sucks you in on some of these cases. They're like, God, this is so messed up. I got to figure out what happens here. Mm-hmm. But then it's done. At the end of this hour, your commitment's over, right? Well, and if it's based on real court cases, mm-hmm. you have pre-pinned story just waiting to be adapted into 47 on a script for right. a television series. Right. Exactly. And there's plenty of that. Mm-hmm. There's murders that happen all the time. It's for like yeah. mortician mm-hmm. and screenwriter for cop episodic <laughs> that'll drama. Ne- that'll never go away. People are always going to get killed. <laughs> You'll always be employed. Right. <laughs> mortician. <laughs> There's job security, man. Can I tell you a funny story real quick yeah. about mortician? Or maybe this is a crematorium story, really. So I had a coworker who uh, he was doing some just work and. Uh, a, a different city and you know he was going into people's homes and installing like technology and stuff for them and he'd be like oh it smells really good in here uh uh it smells like barbecue is like is it can make it work he's like no it smells really good really good here and he kept going on and on about it and he was like i don't mean to imply but are you cooking something really good here this smells can i have some maybe and she's like no that's the morgue across the way it's oh my god burning their bodies Oh, but it smelled good. <laughs> no, that's messed up. That I is mean, messed oh, up. Oh gosh! Anytime, so you brought up mortician. Yeah, you're right. The in demand of people will always die. Sadly, people will always be born. So that's a good uh, you know, job to to be involved. In. So <laughs> yeah, you have yeah, life and death there. Sure. But you're right. Yeah, the people writing on Law and Order will always be employed. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. So. That's a capper here on Zodiac and this cask. This has been a lot of fun. We've been kind of thinking of, is there another avenue into this? And maybe we can come up with a, a three more films that are similar. I don't think they'll be to the gravitas of these three films, but no. uh, I think we'll be able to find something to dabble in this space a little bit. Well, you mentioned Sliver and some of these other erotic thrillers that we never got to talk. You mentioned Basic Instinct. I think Wild Orchid, Sliver. And oh, yeah, Wild Orchid. <laughs> nine and a half weeks. Yeah. The Crush, uh, To Die For, that'd be a good one, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a really fun genre, but we're getting back to a new release coming out next week, and then we're going to get into another cast that's been long in development, right? Mm-hmm. That would maybe longer than the serial killer cast. Yeah. So, but to kind of have be a placeholder in between these two, we got a new release coming out. And man, has this movie been delayed possibly more than Wonder Woman 84? There's a good chance. I'm going to do some research to see the different dates this film has occupied. But yeah. Sony Pictures, Marvel Studios associated with, we're going to go dabble with Morbius. Are you excited? I don't know. Uh, I am actually. Are you? I am. It'll be interesting to get your take because you're, <clears throat> you're the Spider-Man guy. So you can maybe give us some insight onto the hit lore of... Michael Morbius in, re- it done. in relation to Spider-Man, but mm-hmm. it always felt like that when I saw the first announcement, I was like, he's getting a movie. So we can kind of go there with that. But what's so Sony's doing something here with their Spider-Man characters, right? Cause we're getting a Craven movie. 
Uh, we already got uh, Venom and now Morbius. Are they working on something we don't know about that's just going to just tie everything together? I think it involves the number six. Could, right? It's got to. And, and I guess Keaton has a pretty significant role in this film, too, as the Vulture. And you know what? I think the doors are open. I mean, as successful as the last Spider-Man film was, even if it wasn't Tom Holland, you could bring those other two guys back with these villains, right? Yeah. I mean, they totally set it up to be that, too. Yeah. And I don't think people would hate that. I think people would be all for that. They're going to tie it all together somehow. They've got to bring the Tom Hardy element into one of these. And the minute he shows up is the minute the whole thing comes together. Okay. Don't you agree? Yeah. I, I still, we watched in the last two weeks, we've watched No Way Home mm-hmm. three different times. Mm. It gets better every time. And, you know, we've talked a lot about why I love Tobey Maguire so much. I still think he's the best Peter Parker. We watched it again last night. I still can't quite figure out exactly what the Tom Hardy bit in the post credits is with that Mm -hmm. and him blinking. Like, I don't know if that's him being from another universe called to the Dr. Strange timeline. Cause he kind of was already in that world anyway for some of the TV stuff that we had seen. I'm not sure where he's going. I'm not sure if that's the blip. I, I don't exactly know what, what's happening there. Yeah. And there's a lot of theories out there and I, but he's in the movie. Mm-hmm. So they're trying, they're trying to do something. They're trying. Mm-hmm. He's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Matt Murdoch's in the movie. Yeah. They're trying. What is, yeah, exactly. Right. There's, there's all these nuggets here and I don't know, maybe it's strange in the multiverse of madness. That's going to tie it together even more or make it more, more convoluted. All they've got to do is find one little place and you know, Sony will for the right price, let it happen again. Let it happen again. Anyway, so yeah, Morbius. <laughs> yeah, Michael Morbius with Jared Leto. Um, I just want just a theory. I want to propose it because we're we're trying to nail down what Marvel's doing in this next slate of films, which was you know the Infinity Saga was twenty three films deep. Doesn't this like new iteration kind of film like a multiverse like type of area that they're dabbling into? So you got Loki, you have Spider Man, and then Strange. Like it seems like they're playing. Quantumania with Ant-Man, they're playing fast and loose with different realities and stuff. And maybe that's just kind of the, just this little small section that we're dealing with here. You know, there are three things that really scare me away in film. Mm-hmm. AA, AI claiming sentience. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like that. Yeah. Time travel and multiple realities all converging in one. Yeah. Oof. Loki was a miss, but Spider-Man was... Pretty good. It sure was. So I'm hopeful for Strange. So we'll, we'll see where the where the groundwork leads us. But you got that coming to you next week. I got to get going. I got to go solve a cipher of my own. Hopefully it's easier than these Zodiac ciphers. Or maybe we get the Paul Dano's Riddler to come help us out with, uh, with that cipher. Because it's taken from this movie, right? Let me go get the uh, papers from the Joker. I just let him borrow them. That's where our decoding element oh, yeah. is, I'm Why sure. Why would you do that? Excellent. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Zodiac is property of Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers Pictures, and Phoenix Pictures. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Now on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being positive, I'll show you.
least an eight. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. Like a star, my vast sleep, I opened my eyes to take a peek To find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility Just then 